Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. We're delighted that this is our 60th episode and I sat back with Adele and our team and we thought, how do we make a really special occasion of this milestone being our 60th podcast episode? And we didn't have to think for long. We've just finished um, a deep dive conference with our Platinum Mastermind members and Adele, who was lucky enough to see our um, guest for today on stage with Sir Richard Branson at an event um, introduced us to Michael Crosland. Um, Michael had an amazing impact at that online conference with our farming community and it gives me just great pleasure and a real honour to introduce Michael to you all today. But I'm going to do this formally because his introduction is just worth hearing. So Here it is. In the last five years, our guest has presented to people from all walks of life around the world. He's spoken to corporates from all backgrounds, juvenile detention centres in Texas, September 11 victims, elite athletes across the globe, and through his numerous charities, including Make-A-Wish Foundation, has given hope and strength to many people facing life-threatening illness. Despite spending nearly a quarter of his life in hospital, he's forged a highly successful career in in the corporate world as an executive coach, represented Australia in his chosen sport and featured regularly across all forms of media. He runs a school and orphanage in Haiti and has has been presented with the Australia Day ambassador role for eight consecutive years. The award-winning documentary on his life by ABC's Australian Story has been viewed by over 4 million people. And in 2016, he released his first tell-all autobiography, which is now a bestseller across six different countries. In 2018, he featured on MTV's funny show Ridiculousness in the USA with over 5 million viewers and was one of the Queen's baton bearers for the Commonwealth Games. He's shared the stage with the likes of Sir Richard Branson, of Tony Robbins and the Dalai Lama. And if that's not enough, his recent video of him sharing, speaking in LA has been viewed by over 60 million people. As I said, it gives me real honour to introduce a kick around Aussie bloke who's really making a dent on the planet, Michael Crosland. G'day, mate. Mate, thank you. Thank you so much for the very long introduction. You've pumped the tyres up and uh, I hope that I can give the, uh, the 60th a, uh, a nice little run with some positivity, optimism and some tools. And, you know, I'm just, as you said, I'm just an ordinary Aussie bloke that's faced my fair share of kicks and now I'm very fortunate to travel the world and, and share it with people and hopefully inspire people to look at life a little differently. So uh, great to be on the show, mate, and thanks again for having me. Thank you, mate. I look forward to sharing your story. Your, your groundedness and your humility really hit a spot with um, our clients only a few weeks ago, and we're just delighted to have you part of this podcast. So thank you again. So first question, Michael, how old are you? Simple one to start off. I'm, uh, I'm old enough to know better and young enough to do it again. That's probably the best answer. Now, I, um, I'm 30, 36 years old. I know that uh, the wrinkles 
Um, they say every line tells a story and clearly with all these wrinkles I have, I have plenty of stories to tell. But uh, 30, 36 years young and uh, grateful every day to get out of bed and still be here. Mate, I think it's fair to say that, that your life already has been one that, to say it's been other than normal would be an understatement. Um, just to kick us off and given your story, and we'll go into that shortly, but I'm just keen for you to share with me, what would you say to an individual, perhaps a farming family or an individual in a farming family in our community that might have lost their farms in a fire recently, um, endured four plus years of somewhat hostile drought or dry seasons or be facing their own version of adversity? What would you say to them as they sort of navigate their own challenge at this time? Firstly, I'd say I'm deeply, uh, deeply sorry to hear of the struggles, the pain and the challenges that uh, they have gone through and continue to go through. But I think as you'll hear throughout today's session, you know, I, I've learned a lot of things in my very short time on this earth and I've packed a lot into it as well. But I think that a couple of things that I've learned is that it's not the adversity in our life that defines us, it's how we deal with it. I think that we need to certainly embrace the coolness of the shadows so we can truly enjoy the warmth of the sunshine. I also truly believe that through great darkness, that is our discovery moment. We do not discover how unfair our life is, but rather we begin to discover how powerful we have been created. And I think the final point that I try and reflect on and think of every single day is someone said to me one day, they said, Michael, you have been dealt with some really shit cards, excuse my language, but... I reflect on that statement and I think to myself, whilst ever I'm being dealt cards, that means I'm still in the game. And whilst ever I'm still in the game, it's about how I choose to play those cards that allows me to live an extraordinary life. And I think for all the farms, for everybody that's faced a challenge, anybody that has a story to tell, I think that we need to reflect on the fact that it is not about the cards that we have been dealt that will determine the outcome of our life. It's about how we choose to play them. So I think that we need to be grateful that we still have cards. We need to be grateful that we're still in the game and we need to play those cards as effectively as what we possibly can. Why is it that challenge turns up for us in life, do you believe? I wish I knew the answer, mate, because I would have tried to mitigate a lot of my challenges, but I really believe that there are only two types of people in the world. You know, there are those that use their pain and suffering as the justification behind why they choose to fail. And there are those that use the exact same pain and suffering as the motivation to succeed. And I really believe that it's a mindset thing. I love the story about the, uh, the alcoholic father that has two children and they're both boys. And one of the boys, they interview him when he turns 20 and he's an alcoholic and he drinks a ton. And they said to the 20 year old, they said, you know, Hey, wh why do you drink? Why are you an alcoholic? And he says, I'm an alcoholic because I watched my father grow up. And then they interviewed the other 20-year-old, and he has never touched alcohol. And they said, why don't you drink? And he said, I don't drink because I watched my father growing up. And I think it's so true. It's like the choices that we make each and every day can help reshape, remold and redefine our future. And if we choose to be a victim in our life and think that life's not fair, then without a doubt, our life will be not fair. But if we just simply make the choice to say, you know what, keep throwing them at me, 
because every time I get knocked down, I'm just going to get back up. And I always love that saying, whenever you fall, try and land on your back because if you can look up, you can get up and keep moving forward. And for me, that's what I try and do. I try and fail fast, fail forward and fail often every single day to empower me to lead the best life that I can and hopefully lead the world a little bit better place than what I found it. Thanks, Michael. Such wonderful insights. Um, I've heard you say that I went to the doctor with my mum and my sister. She had an ear infection and five years later I came home. Just sharing with me kind of, I think you were only 11 months old at that stage. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I I think often in our world we wait until it's too late before we decide to change, right? We wait until we're diagnosed with lung cancer before we stop smoking. We wait until we lose someone that we love before we tell them that we love them. And, you know, one thing that frustrates me so much is that in the world we live today, many of us live their life like it's a dress rehearsal. And for me, I know that this is my one shot. It's my one chance. And I know that when my time is up on this earth, my tank is going to be on empty. There's going to be nothing left. Uh, I went to the doctors with my my sister. She had an ear infection. um, And I'm much more of a hugger. I give the doctor a bit of a hug as I'm sort of trying to walk and crawl around. His knee brushes my stomach. He thinks that doesn't feel right. Um, I'm taking a Coffs Harbour Hospital. That night I'm airlifted to Sydney Hospital. And the following morning, I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer of the central nervous system called neuroblastoma stage four. The doctor said no chance of survival, take your little boy home and allow him to live the next few months with his family because there's nothing that we can do. But like everybody listening, we all have choices. And my mum chose to ask one simple question. I don't want to know what the chances are of my son dying is. I just want to know what the chances are of my son surviving is. Uh, The doctor said I had a 96% death rate. They said go home. Don't put your boy through that sort of pain. But how often do we look at the beer, the wine, being half empty as opposed to half full? I'm just so grateful that my mum chose to look at my life not being 96% empty, but she chose to look at my life being 4% full. I started chemotherapy on my first birthday. They couldn't wait one day. They couldn't allow me to celebrate and then start the chemo the next day because the tumour was growing so rapidly and aggressively. And I reflect back on that moment in my life and I think to myself, it would be so easy if we played the victim card and think life's not fair because I've had to have chemo on my very first birthday. Imagine the pain as a parent. But then we can also look at it and say this is the first day of the rest of my life. This is the first day that I truly start to fight and beat this horrible, horrible disease. As I said, chemo, nine days on, three days off, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. I was on that same cycle until eventually the doctor came in and said, we're sorry, the tumour has built a resistance. It's taken over half of your son's body. We need to go into surgery. I went into surgery and six hours later, the doctors came out and said, we didn't get it all. There's now nothing that we can do. Myself and my mum were in Sydney Camperdown Children's Hospital And my family, uh, we're in Coffs Harbour. So they were flown down from Coffs Harbour, my dad and my three older sisters. They came into the room and basically they were told to say goodbye to their son and their brother. But the very next day there was an American doctor. He was trialling an experimental drug on 25 patients. They had 24 candidates and they asked my family whether I wanted to be number 25. I think outside of love, hope is one of the most powerful words in the English dictionary. 
and this gave us hope. My mum said yes. The drug had never been used on humans before, only on animals. They had no idea what the side effects would be. And the side effects were horrific. We were, we were covered from head to toe in blisters. We were wrapped up in bandages and we were put in baths full of ice trying to prevent our brains from frying. But sadly, 24 out of the 25 of us that were on that drug passed away. And I say to people all around the world that I'm one of the lucky ones. I never say I'm one of the lucky ones because I never say that I was one of the lucky ones because I'm still alive. I, I say I'm one of the lucky ones because I wasn't my mum. Now, my mum had to make a choice to inject a drug into a child that's killed every single person that ever taken it. She, um, she had to go to death counselling every week for two hours to deal with what was going to happen to a little boy. You know, I... I've recently discovered, as you know, that it is far easier to lie in the bed than stand next to it. And I'm eternally grateful for her suffering and her pain, which has enabled me to lead a life that I get to lead every day, which is filled with joy and happiness and appreciation and gratitude and humility. And the day they told me that I could go home, they walked out of the room and they said to my mum, your son, he will never go to school. He will never play sport. He'll be a housebound baby. And if he reaches his teenagers, it'll be a miracle. And I don't know why they take them outside the curtains because the curtains are not soundproof, right? We can hear everything that they're saying. And my mum comes back through the curtains and uh, I made out I didn't hear what the doctor said. And I said, what did the doctor say? And she said, oh, the doctors told me that everything was going to be okay. We'll speak to just how important those few words are later on in this conversation, Michael. Um, it's such an amazing story just to think that your young years were, were spent in hospital wrestling with um, treatment and illness. What was it that allowed you to keep pushing through that as a young person? I think for me it was something that my mum instilled in me at a very young age and it was the feeling of normality. She made me make my bed every morning in hospital. She made me get up and go to the toilet and not use the potty. She made me strive and fight for a bigger purpose and she would constantly tell me, son, you need to have a dream. You need to have a dream. And I told her one day I wanted to be normal. I wanted to go home. I wanted to make friends. I wanted to go to school. And she would say that your dream is not big enough and if you do not stretch yourself, you will never achieve your true potential. So I need you to come up with a bigger dream. And one day she came in and I said, I have another dream. She said, what's that? I said, one day when I grow up, not only do I want to be normal like everybody else, but one day I want to play baseball in America. And I remember she thought to herself, oh, maybe, maybe the first dream of being normal is a little bit more realistic than uh, the second dream of playing baseball in America. But as they said, I would never go to school. I never would play sport. I'd be a housebound baby. But um, as you know, fortunately enough, uh, many years later, I was lucky enough to go to school, go to college, uh, get a full ride scholarship to play baseball in America to represent this great country that we all call home. And I think that it's so pertinent and so important that people in your life will only tell you what you can't do. They will never tell you what you can do. And for me, it was really focused about not proving other people wrong, but more importantly, proving myself right. And that was really dug in deep at 12. As you know, I suffered my first major cardiac arrest. I was in hospital for four months. I was very depressed. I was very lonely. I'd finally got a chance to taste what normality was. And 
and they said to my mum, you know, your son's never going to play baseball. You're never, he's never going to play sport again. And uh, it was almost like the foot up the backside that I needed so desperately for me to fight that little bit harder to be the guy that did 10% extra that allowed me to fall into the 1% category that got a chance to achieve his dreams. So you mentioned that dream of basketball, playing baseball in America. Where did that come from? And how, how did that play out? Because it's, it's incredible to think that years on, you got to play baseball in America, that you held on to that dream. You didn't let it go, even through more episodes back in hospital and a whole lot of challenge that it was very real for you through school and, and through uni. Yeah, my, my parents always loved the game of baseball, but uh, the cleaners in hospital back in the day, they would always mop the floor at 4am. I have no idea why they need to clean the floor that early, but they do. And they would bash my bed. I'd wake up. I was just a little kid. And uh, we had a little remote control thing that was connected to the bed. And I'd push the button and the TV would come on. And we only had ABC back in those days. And ABC at 4am, Major League Baseball was on. And I would literally sit there for hours and hours and hours and watch the game that I loved. And that sort of was really what planted and embedded the seed. And, you know, my male friends, they always say, lucky back in those days you didn't have SBS. Would have been amazing what your dreams might have wanted to become because at 4 a.m. on SBS, there's all sorts of shows on that you don't want to be watching when you're a young kid. But, you know, I, I, would, I would get the doctors to put the needle in my head simply so I could have two hands to play catch. And my mum would sit at the end of the bed and she'd lob the ball to me and I'd catch it and I'd throw it back. And it's amazing what can happen when you really begin to believe in yourself. And I think right now more than ever, I don't know why it is, but society just searches daily to identify someone that believes in them, i.e. social media and how many followers and how many likes they get on a post. You know, I, I realized a long time ago that my value does not decrease based on one's inability to see my worth. My value is dictated and determined by how I see my life and how I believe in me and the impact that I can have on the world. And I really believed in myself. You know, I wanted to be the guy that brushed his teeth and looked back at myself and said, you're the only person that's truly in control of your destiny. And I really believe that. And to get a chance to represent Australia with the Australian Expos team in uh, when I was 14 and a half to make the under-16s team and then <clears throat> playing that team for a couple of years and then make the under-18s team and be down in Texas and a scout come up to me and said, hey, you're definitely not the biggest or the strongest, but uh, there's a passion in you that we want to reach in and grab. And to get a chance to play in stadiums that have 20,000 seats in them and the biggest crowd we play in front of here in Australia was about 20 people. So it was just, it was a real dream come true. It was a remarkable opportunity and you know, when you get told all your life you can't do something and then all of a sudden you get a chance to achieve it and listening to our national anthem and watching your flag get raised, it is, it is, uh, it is really that, that old saying, dreams are our life's purpose. And that's certainly my purpose and that's what got me out of bed every day to continue to fight regardless of what doctors, regardless of what the naysayers would try and enforce into my mindset. I just believed in myself and got a chance to achieve it. Where for you do you think that self-belief comes from for you, Michael? You say that you've always believed in yourself, but if you were to reflect on that, where, where has that come from for you from a young age? Without a doubt, it's come from my mum. You know, how, how could I ever give up on myself? When I had a mother that went through so much pain, 
and never gave up on me. It would be completely disrespecting the pain and the suffering that she went through if I didn't continue to fight. And, you know, I say that I've always believed in myself. There's been times where I've had really dark days, as you know, and I've had to fight through those demons and fight through those dark holes. But I think that's where the underlying belief and faith and fight came from, from an unwavering commitment from a mother to her son to never give up hope and to never give up on a little boy. And now I get to stand here being 36 years old and getting a chance to uh, continue to hopefully inspire people but also I've had a chance to really make an impact on the world. I've heard you say that you're the kind of guy who doesn't have a plan B, that you just have a plan A, and if that doesn't work, you find another plan A. Um, Do you see people opting out and not staying with their dreams and perhaps not believing themselves in themselves enough to keep going? Absolutely. And too often we see it, right? And, The analogy I like to use is people get 70% of the way down plan A and they look over at plan B and they go, you know what, the grass looks greener, the road looks smoother. It looks like there's a lot less challenges over there. So we quit on our dream, we quit on plan A and we just dive into plan B. But I realise that nothing easy is worth it. Everything that I've achieved and accomplished in my life has come through hard work, suffering, pain, sweat, tears And when I get to that ultimate destination of achievement or accomplishment, I reflect back on it and go, you know what, that was worth it. Anything that's been easy in my life has not been worth it. And that's why I think it's so critical. And I I see it so often with incredibly rich people and they give their kids everything. They get their, their world handed to them on a golden platter and they never are grateful and they never appreciate it. You know, I got my first pair of billabong shorts when I was in year 12 at high school and that was because my mum bought a $4.95 pair of Lowe's shorts and my dad had an old surfing shirt with a billabong logo on it and she ripped it off and sewed it on with fluoro orange thread because that was all the thread we had in the house. They were the worst Thailand knockoff billabong shorts you have ever seen in your life. But but I loved it and it made me feel like I was representing a really cool brand, you know, but those are the things that have empowered me to continue to fight and strive for a greater life for, for my family, my future. And I really believe that if we just dig a little deeper, there's a great analogy about bamboo. There's a type of bamboo in the world that grows 90 feet in six weeks. They say it's the fastest growing bamboo in the world. But what you don't realize is you plant that seed and you need to water it every single day for five years. If you water that seed for four years, 360 odd days, but you don't water it all the way until it ends up breaking the soil, that seed dies. And that is like our dreams. If we don't water, nurture and continue to feed our dreams until finally we get a chance to break the soil, our dreams die. And when people say to me, that's the fastest growing bamboo in the world, it did not take six weeks to grow 90 feet. It took five years and six weeks to grow 90 feet. And I'm sure farmers know exactly that, right? You need to plant it, you need to water it, you need to feed it, you need to love it, you need to nurture it before finally the crop comes through. And that's how we all are with our lives, with our dreams, with our goals, with our visions, with our purpose, with our destiny. It's about continuing to nurture and believe and water 
those goals and dreams and wishes for them to come true. And I promise you, when you finally break the soil and that little plant head up, it's amazing. You know, people say to me, I'm an overnight success. I've spoken to more than 600,000 people around the world. I've had a video, 66 million views. I've had a chance to travel the world and do some really cool things. But I've been grinding, you know, it's, I love the story, a little bit of a tangent, but I love the story about the artist. He's a famous artist and he's sitting down and, and he's writing, he's, he's writing in his memoir or his little gulk or whatever it is. And a lady comes up and he's like, oh my God, you know, I love your art. You're amazing. You're the best artist in the world. Is there any chance you could just take a minute to do a quick sketch of me? And he's like, sure, of course, I'd love to. So he sits down, he draws a little sketch. It takes him about three minutes and then gives it to her. And she's like, oh my God, that's amazing. I need to pay you. Let me pay you. Let me pay you. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you must pay me. Uh, it's going to be $3,000. And she's like, $3,000? What do you mean $3,000? It took you three minutes to draw that. And he goes, yeah, it may have only taken me three minutes to draw that. But it took me a lifetime of lessons, a lifetime of investing, a lifetime of nurturing and growing and developing and sacrificing for me to have the ability to be able to draw that in three minutes. You know, And for me, I think that's the same. It's taken me 36 years to be able to refine my craft and refine my message and stay humble and have humility at the center of my entire life and have a passion to serve and give without remembering and receive without forgetting, which has enabled me to reach heights in the speaking world and coaching world and, and writing books and all those sort of things because I've just wanted to, to serve. And I think that that's, that's what life's mission should be about. You know, when we strive to serve, not earn, that's when we start to truly leave our legacy. Michael, I recall you sharing a story about, I guess, starting in a corporate career in finance and then there being a moment where you made the shift from trying to climb the ladder that, that so many of us do to committing to making a difference and to being in the service of others. Would you mind just sharing a bit about that journey from perhaps school and into corporate and then what was the inspiration for that change? I, I, I was at college in America. I was only over there for six months before my health deteriorated. I lost my contract. I didn't complete my studies and I moved back to Australia. I never played baseball again in America. And I got a job in banking and I, I remember meeting the CEO a couple of days in and he said to me, where do you see yourself in five years' time? And I probably shouldn't have said it, but I did. I said, in five years' time, I'm going to take your job. And I was driven. I was determined to achieve greatness in whatever I put my heart and my mind to. And I did climb the corporate ladder very quickly. I had 600 staff, 120 banks around Australia and New Zealand. I was catching up with the CEO every second Thursday. I, I was the youngest bank manager in Australia at the age of 20. You know, I, I realized that as long as I fail fast, fail forward and fail often, and as long as I strive to invest in my team so my team had my skills, then I made my role redundant. But I was driven by the three Ps that destroyed people. I was driven by power, privileges and possessions. And it took me to hit rock bottom in 2009 for me to really wake up to myself. You know, I had the million-dollar house and the sports cars and the Rolexes and all the things that we really don't need but feel that we do. And I chased what I thought success was and it took me so far away from what success is and success is really about being happy. 
And in 2009, I got bacterial meningitis. I got fluid on the brain and I had Bell's palsy down the right-hand side of my body. I had to learn to walk again and talk again and as sad as it is to admit it, and I'm sure many of you guys possibly have been in this state of mind, I just had enough. I, I didn't want to fight anymore. I was in the darkest days of my life and my wife would come in every night into hospital and she would say, I love you and I'll see you in the morning. And I would wait for her to walk out of the room and I would say, I love you and goodbye because I'd pray to God every night that I'd go to bed and I wouldn't wake up. But as I said earlier, in those dark days, they are our discovery moments and we discover not how unfair the life we live is, but we begin to discover how powerful we have been created. And it gave me great clarity in understanding the two things I needed to master and that was the gift of giving and what success was. And now I understand that success is about getting out of bed and knowing in my heart that I can make a difference in somebody else's life. And the giving piece, for me, it's really about the more you give, expecting nothing in return, the more you shall receive. And that's when I set out on a big goal, a big dream that people told me I was crazy to. I walked away from the corporate world and I had a dream of making a global impact. And I decided to go somewhere to make a difference in somebody's life who will never, ever be able to return the favor. And I was so wrong because where I went and the lives that I impacted changed my life forever. And I will never be able to give to these people what they gave to me. And uh, I decided to go to Haiti. And there was an earthquake that hit Haiti killed 316,000 people. And I decided to rebuild an, a school for 270 kids. And then we were told we'd never be able to have kids. So we built an orphanage for 40 beautiful little babies. And they taught me, they taught me what life is all about. You know, they taught me that when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. And these kids have nothing. They have no iPads, no laptops, no farms, no family. And they woke up this morning and they thought they had everything. And the reason why they thought they had everything is because they woke up this morning. And that is something that sits in my heart every day and it makes me really check myself. You know, there's one boy there. He lost his mum, his dad and both his brothers. He lived on the streets for four months. Um, his life was in tatters and we took him in and we nurtured him up and now he's graduated high school. He got a full-ride scholarship to Brazil to study engineering and now he's finished his second year of studies and he's fallen into the Golden Keys category where he's in the top 10% of university students from around the world. And I think to myself, if there is any person on this planet that is allowed to make an excuse and live the victim card and think that his life's not fair, then that's him. But again, he fell into that other category that used the pain and suffering of his past as the motivation to succeed. And now he's getting a chance to inspire people to show that the key to transformation is education. And he is really starting to... Uh, to get an incredible education and inspire many kids to believe in themselves and realize anything is possible. So that was a really big fundamental shift and change for me. And that led me down the speaking path. And then it just sort of 2015, 2016, it went crazy. I got a chance to share the stage with the Dalai Lama at events like that and a couple of different TV shows in America and then a gig on Fox over here. And then I did iFish, which is crazy. I don't even really know how to fish, but I went on iFish, which was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, as you said earlier, and I'm very grateful for you to say it, you know, I'm, I'm just a knock around Aussie bloke. And I think that when you demonstrate and show humility and authenticity, uh, I think people see that. And that's, that's who I am. You know, I'm just a guy that wants to get out of bed and 
hopefully make other people's lives better. And because of that, it makes my life better as well. What is it to be in the service of others and committing so intently to such a significant charitable cause? First, I think it's uh, an addiction. Um, I know that many of you would have heard about the helpers high. There's a chemical that is released into our body when we help somebody, when we make a difference in somebody's life. And that is addictive. And, you know, I realize now that it is far greater to give than to receive. And the more that we constantly practice it, the more that we focus on it, the more that we are driven by it, the greater joy that it brings to our lives. And the analogy I like to share is that I used to pay for people's fuel. And uh, I would sit around and I'd wait for them to go in. I'd never pay for the Bowser with diesel on it because diesel's way, way too expensive because they get $180 in their, in their four-wheel drive. But I'd pay for their fuel. And, and then they would go inside and they'd go to pay for their fuel and, and they would say, oh, that guy over there paid. And they would look at me and they'd say, thank you. And then I'd drive off feeling really good about myself. But then I realized the only reason why I was doing that is because I wanted to be thanked. And that's not why we give. So now I pay for people's fuel and then I drive off. And the pessimist people, they always think, well, what happens if you go inside to pay for your fuel and the person behind the counter just pockets the money that you've given them and, and uh, you don't get the discount? Well, the person behind the counter desperately needed it more than you did. What about if they go in and pay for the fuel, you realize that they've paid for your fuel, so you take that $20 and you go and slap it in the poker machines. Well, I hope that they win. You know, I'm not doing it because I want them to win on the poker machines or buy more cigarettes or make bad choices. I'm doing it because it makes me feel good about serving other people. I was in New Zealand speaking last year and there was a homeless lady and I said to her, you know what, I'm not rich, but I'm a guy that has a heart to serve and give and I want to go without so you can have something. Um, What can I do? Like, what can I do for you? Can I pay for a hotel room? Can I shout you a meal? Can I buy you a tent? Can I buy you a a blanket, a sleeping bag, anything? What can I do for you? And she said to me, more than anything in the world, all I really want is I just want somebody to talk to. I've been on the streets for 18 months. I'm invisible. No one sees me. No one cares for me. And that makes it even worse. I'm not on drugs. I've never had drugs. My life was going seemingly well until our 18-month-old baby girl sadly passed away. My husband couldn't cope and he left. I was stuck in a house that I couldn't afford to pay. I was so depressed because I lost my daughter that I couldn't work. So we lost our home. I lost my job. I had nowhere to go. And now I live on the streets. I just want somebody to talk to. So we always think to ourselves, you know what, I'm going to do something when I'm rich, when I'm powerful, when I'm famous. We can make an impact on somebody's life when we are broke and we are lonely. All we need to do is just have a passion to serve. It does not cost us anything to give somebody our time. We don't necessarily need to pay for things. We just need to have a passion in our heart to serve other people and make an impact on their lives. And I think that's when our transformation inwardly starts to happen and we start to get addicted to serving other people. Practically, Michael, the orphanage and school in Haiti, um, what, how did you get that going practically along the way and what's your vision for it now? So we, obviously, I, I, I couldn't afford to financially fund it. 
Um, I align myself with a lot of different charities when I transition out of the corporate world. And unfortunately, I found out that you would donate 50 bucks to provide drinking water to a boy or girl in Africa and 45 bucks was getting chewed up in administration costs. Uh, it, it really crippled me. I couldn't believe it. So I decided uh, with some friends here in our hometown to start our own charity called Frontier Projects where every single cent gets sent. And I think that when people know in their heart that every dollar that you donate is going to the cause that is going to make an impact on these kids' lives, then we had people that wanted to support, which was amazing. Uh, 2016, I'm sure we'll delve into it, but my life took a really tough turn again. And uh, I decided to write my first book. And off the back of that book, we donate all the profits to charity. That has been a fundamental piece of the puzzle which has empowered and enabled us to continue to provide support and funding for these kids which you know obviously makes me feel very very proud and and I'm very blessed and very grateful to be able to do that and um and now our hopes and dreams for over there is really uh you know we have 40 kids in the orphanage we want them all to leave as sad as that sounds we want to find families that can take them to support them out of the 40 kids, 16 of those kids, we found their parents alive nine years after the earthquake. So Haiti is one third the size of Tasmania, yet it has over 10 million people that live there and 80% of them are unemployed. So to find somebody, it's near impossible, but to find 16 parents that are still alive are amazing. But these parents are all unemployed, so they can't take care of their kids. So what we have done is we've started and developed a training and development program to actually empower these parents to be self-sustainable. We've helped them start micro-businesses. And by starting these micro-businesses, that has actually allowed these parents to actually take their kids back in. And that has been just a, a, a beautiful thing to see. And, you know, I can only imagine not seeing a child for seven or eight years thinking they've died and then all of a sudden someone knocks on your door and says, here's your daughter, here's your son. So, you know, we're very proud of what impact we have made over there and we hope that it continues to grow and continues to develop in, uh, in, in allowing these parents to be parents and to be able to take their kids back. Special moments, making that connection possible again for parents and their children. Um, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel that I can, I can go to my final resting place knowing that I've touched some people's lives and probably left the world a bit better place than what I found it. Mm. Sometimes I need to pinch myself because, you know, I, I'm just an ordinary Aussie from Coffs Harbour that... Uh, has faced my fair share of challenges and continue to face challenges. But to reflect back on it is, is a beautiful thing. And I think that's really important for all of us. You know, we get so focused on striving about how far we still have to go. We, we, we rarely reflect on how far we have come. And, you know, to be able to do that in situations and, and areas like this is, uh, is, a, is a really beautiful thing. Some of our farmers, I think often because we produce commodities, wheat, um, meat and other things, we get very focused on production and we get very focused perhaps on profit for us and making the most of the seasons that are in front of us. Um, what would you say to 
our listeners about checking in on that giving piece um, where I think so often our focus is on making the most of what's in front of us for us. Um, What would you say and and how would you encourage them perhaps to think about um, bringing that construct of giving into their lives and into their reality? I really believe that the Dalai Lama said a great saying, which I'm sure many have heard, and that is we sacrifice our health to create wealth and then we need to sacrifice our wealth to take care of our health. And when we die, we, we can't take anything with us. And I don't think it's about how big our house is. I think it's about how big our heart is. And I truly believe that success should be defined by the impact that we can have on other people's lives. How many lives have you positively changed through your passion of service and your desire to give and make a difference in other people's lives? You know, I, I, I have a nice home and I drive a nice car and, you know, we have warm food when we need warm food and we have cold food when we need cold food. And it's not about, you know, if you've got a massive mansion, then you're not a nice person. I think it's just really about for a long time I drove a fancy car because I wanted people to think that I was bigger than what I really was. Now I, I drive a car because it protects me, it protects my wife, and I know that it's a solid car. I don't drive it and park down the main street because I want people to look at me and say, wow, he's successful. And I think that that is a really big difference in why we strive to achieve things. You know, and I, I, really, I really can attest it is far greater to give than to receive. And, you know, in 2008, my mum and dad, they separated. The GFC destroyed everything that I invested for my mum. I lost all of her money. I failed as a man. I failed as a son. I failed, I failed as a family man. I was so disappointed with myself and I had to put my mum in a caravan park. I was, I was ashamed and it was because of my ego and arrogance and my desire to create wealth that nearly took my mum's life away. And then in 2016, you know, I was in a position where I could finally give back to her and to be able to put a pink ribbon on a new door to a new house. Uh, you know, the 470-odd bucks a week that comes out of my account sucks big time. But the passion and the joy that I see in her face and hear in her tone makes it all worthwhile and it makes me so proud of the man that I've become and it's because of understanding that it is far greater to give than to receive and you know I there are times where we go without my family go without because it makes us feel better to serve other people and you know that's why I love at Christmas time when people are stocking up on gifts to try and spoil their family members you know where we're trying to work out ways where we can come up with strategies to help the homeless to serve food to the homeless, to give to those that do not have. And that, that nurturing feeling and that, that, fe- that warm, fuzzy feeling inside when you know you've positively impacted someone who can't return the favour, that, that that's just incredible. When you're speaking to our community, I remember you making a comment that if only we all woke up each day and did something caring and giving in the service of others, what a wonderful world this would be. Yeah, yeah. That if we get up every day and do something that our future self will be proud of, I think that's when um, that's when we have heaven on earth. That's when things start to really shine for all of us.
you talk about how you felt being able to be a good son and provide for your mother after perhaps not nailing that first time round, Michael. Um, and you also mentioned not being able to have a child of your own um, as you were setting up that orphanage and school overseas. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more about that journey for for you? I think that the greatest gift that God can bestow on any of us is to be a to be a parent. And they told me due to all my challenges that we'd never be able to be um, parents. Uh, so we were going to adopt. We were going to bring some kids back from Haiti, but unfortunately, sex trafficking shut that whole idea down. Um, so, which was really, really hard for us to to swallow because we we're just two Aussies that really love people and love life and wanted to give these kids a life of freedom and peace. Um, but because of a select few dirtbags in the world, that obviously destroyed that. But in 2017, after many, many years of IVF, of being patient uh, and being very persistent, we announced to the world that we we're going to have a little baby. And that was just the greatest gift that we could ever ask for. Uh, unfortunately, as you know, it didn't plan out the way we thought um, because things don't always go to plan. Uh, our little baby decided to arrive 10 weeks early, weighing two pounds on the 12th of December 2017. A uh, beautiful little boy named Lachlan James, and he was very, very unwell. He was taken into intensive care unit level three, where we couldn't hold him, where we couldn't, we couldn't be parents. And um, after a month, he started to get stable, and things started to look really good. And then one day, everything just fell apart. And they took me into a room, and they told me that they believed our son had contracted a horrible illness called sepsis. Uh, blood disease, they told us that um, if he made the end of the week, it would be a miracle. And I, I had to watch a man resuscitate my little boy and I remember, I remember so clearly just saying, take my house, excuse me, take my, take my car, take everything that I've ever worked for. But just please don't take my little boy. And I think, again, why is it that we wait until it's too late before we decide to change? And it made, made me walk a few days in my mum's shoes for the very first time. And I realised then very clearly that it is far easier lying in the bed than standing next to it. But he wouldn't quit. He wouldn't give up. And now he's the sweetest, beautiful little boy and we are just so grateful that he is healthy he is happy uh, we're grateful that he looks like his mum and not his dad because he's a very good looking kid <laughs> if he looked like me it'd be a bit of a worry uh, so we're just super super excited and um, to elaborate and add to that um, we just announced to our parents on the weekend that, that uh, we're expecting another little baby so hey. we're um, yeah we're over the moon we're due for another baby the end of January uh, 2021 so we're just god continues to bless us and we are just so grateful to be on this journey of life and we just want to keep getting up out of bed every single day and and breath that we get to take and and 
try and be the best parents that we possibly can be and uh, we're just we're just so excited about the next chapter that is amazing news michael congratulations fantastic is melissa well she has vomited every day for 14 weeks so um I uh, I am very, very grateful that I am a man and <laughs> not a woman because I feel so sorry for her. But she's a she's she's a fighter and um, we uh, we just hope that it's a very fat, very long pregnancy. We don't we don't want any babies twenty twenty. We want it all to be next year. So that's um a fat Christmas is the goal. So we're uh, yeah, we're obviously we're over the moon. It's amazing. Wishing you all the best in health. Thank you. That's just incredible news. You mentioned a lot in well, what I'm hearing a lot in what you're saying is all around gratitude. We're grateful for, and even in adversity, we're grateful for. How important do you believe gratitude is as we sort of navigate life and, and have to deal with tough times? in keeping some perspective and moving through? I really believe that we learn far more from a loss than we ever do from a win. And I think the more that we can delve deep into that statement, I think the more that we truly begin to understand it. And I really believe that the greatest gift that I have been given in my life is my adversity, my challenges and my struggles, because I do not complain about first world problems which people that have had an easy life complain about every day. You know, like last year I was on 186 flights around the world. Probably 180 of them were with Qantas and probably 179 of them were delayed. But I, I, I didn't complain because how fortunate am I to be on a plane travelling around the world? I get stuck in traffic, <clears throat> not in Coffs Harbour because if we have 10 cars at a traffic lights, we think it must be Easter or Christmas or there's been a crash. But when I'm in Sydney, you know, there's traffic. I go, well, there's traffic on the road. You know, we don't complain about the trivial things. I think that there's a, there's a really powerful analogy and it's called the two-arrow effect. The first arrow is the situation, the actual situation. And the second arrow is the story that we tell ourselves about the situation. And the example that we use is like we wake up in the morning and it's raining. The situation is that it's raining. That situation does not cause us any pain. What causes us is the pain is the second arrow, which is what we tell about ourselves, which is, oh, my God, it's raining. Now we can't go for a ride. We can't go for a hike. It's going to be a miserable, horrible, wet, cold, lonely day. No, it's not. You know, we need rain, right? Farmers need the rain. We need to water our crops. We need to settle the dust. We need to wash our roads. We need to, you know, clean, clean the planet. We need the rain, but it's about the story that we tell ourselves that's going to cause us the pain. And I think the more that we can reflect on that and say, is it really the situation that's causing the pain or is it the story that we're telling ourselves about the situation that's causing our pain? And I think when we reflect on that, that's when we can take a really, really sharp turn and take our lives into the direction that we want to take it. Thank you. Wonderful comment. on <clears throat> quote on my wall from you, um, the life you complain about is a dream for someone else. Is that correct? Is that, have I done that? Um, That's beautiful, yeah. A life that we complain about is only a dream for some. Where's that come from for you? That, oh, that, that is definitely Haiti. That is definitely, you know, how can we possibly complain? You know, I had, a, I had one of my 
clients that I coached the other day called me, <clears throat> excuse me, and he was complaining about three big decisions that he had to make. And he's so stressed about the three big decisions that he has to make. The first decision is, do I buy a quarter share in this $3 million yacht? Because I only get 90 days on the yacht if I buy a quarter share or 80 days. The second decision was, but there's another yacht that's worth $8 million, but that's twice as much money. Should I do that? Or the third one is, there's this beautiful beachfront house that I'm thinking about buying. I'm just so stressed out. I'm like, oh my God, you are kidding me. You are kidding me. You know, I love the story about the boy that fell off his motorbike and got a stick in his leg. And the nurse says, oh, my God, that's terrible. you got a stick in your leg. You know, things couldn't get much worse. And he says, yeah, yeah, it could be much worse. And the nurse says, what do you mean it could be worse? You've got a stick in your leg. And he says, it could be worse. The stick could have got me in the balls. And I think that is so true. Regardless of the challenges that we go through, regardless of the pain and the suffering that we're in, it could always be worse. And the more that we correct and shift our mindset, the easier it will be for us to get through those pain. Sorry about talking around the stick and the balls, but I think it's a great story and I think it's really important. Absolutely. No, not at all. <clears throat> Myself, since I am connected to exactly <laughs> that, when the water pump's not working, at least it's not a stick in the balls. <laughs> Absolutely. So perspective is everything, right? And I think perspective and that resilience can come out of challenging times and out of <clears throat> Yep, no doubt. And that's why so many of our beautiful, incredible farmers have resilience and Aussie toughness and Aussie pride because they face the barren land, the sunburnt country, the droughts, the floods and everything in between. Mm. And they continue to get up. They continue to fight. They continue to strive for a brighter future and they continue to strive to leave a legacy for their family and the ones that they love the most. And I have great admiration for them, obviously. Thank you, Michael. That's a wonderful comment. Now you've, um, as you say, you've, you've, in recent years, led a life of international travel and speaking in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people, and um, you've met some amazing people. And more recently, an executive coach to some elite athletes and um, high-performing corporate leaders. How have you found that coaching journey? And um, the impact that you've had on, I guess, some leaders around the world through that journey? I think it's been almost like an opportunity in my life where I could wrap my hands around someone's chin and face and shake their heads and tell them to wake up to themselves and realise how amazing they've got it. You know, I've been asked to be a coach for many, many years and I've constantly, I've constantly made an excuse to say no because I didn't want to do it. You know that old saying, if it's important, you'll find a way. If not, you'll find an excuse. I constantly found an excuse. I didn't want to do it. And then started this year, my whole world changed. 68 events cancelled. My tour with Tony Robbins pulled. A lot, of, a lot of things went down that caused a lot of pain and a lot of worry and a lot of fear. And I had to evolve. I had to adapt. I had to embrace change. And I had to diversify and I started to get asked from people all around the world whether I would support them in um, bettering themselves professionally, personally and uh, physically, psychologically and I've delved into it heavily and I didn't realise how much I had in me and I realised as well the greatest way to learn is to teach and right now I'm teaching but at the same time 
I'm continually reinforcing those messages and those behaviors in me. And uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm really enjoying the journey and I'm really enjoying the impact. And, you know, I, I really, I really hope that, and I've heard it before, um, when someone messaged you and said, because, because of you, I didn't give up. And that is, um, that's a, that's a beautiful gift. Mm. I feel like business coaching and coaching is somewhat new to our industry, agriculture, and I feel very grateful and privileged to be part of the Farm Owners Academy and and bringing all the benefits of, of what that is into an industry that might not have seen a lot of it. What, what, what's your take on the impact that good quality coaching can have on leaders, be it corporate be it elite athlete be it small business owners be it dads and mums or be it farmers what do you the impact of coaching can be i think when you invest in yourself when you begin to value yourself when you begin to love yourself then that's when you can achieve your optimal level you look at the greatest ceos the greatest success athletes corporate everything in between there is one thing they all have in common they have a coach and I think that it is the key. It is a massive key to transformation. It's a massive key for constant growth. You know, we need uh, we need uh, the three C's that really help us uh, become the best versions of ourselves. The first one is we need to surround ourselves with a great community. The second one is we need great consistency. And the third one is we need a great coach. And I think that you know, I'm, I'm not the big sales guy. I'm not trying to share this stuff because I want to be anybody's coach. Uh, if you want me to be a coach, obviously I'd love to have a chat. But the, the, real, the real benefit is the proof in the pudding, the transformation that you can have, um, you know, on your business life. But for me, more importantly, I want people to be a better dad. I want them to be a better husband. I want them to be a better mum, a better friend, a better neighbour. I don't really care what their business does. I don't care how much money they make. I just want to focus on what impact they can make. Mm. Thanks, Michael. I think, you know, with values aligned in that because I think our community and my team are just so dedicated to, to achieving all of that for our farming community. So thank you. For Absolutely. That. Now, everything will be okay. Um, as we join the dots through your journey, um, <laughs> I'd love for you to share what those words mean for you and you're just releasing your latest book, which has that title. Um, I'd love for you to share that, um, what those words mean to you and why the title. I didn't realise that there was a thread throughout my entire life of everything will be okay. You know, I was told I'd never play sport, I'd never go to school, I'd be a housebound baby, and if I reach my teenage years, it'll be a miracle. My mum said everything will be okay. At 12, I had a heart attack. They said I'd never play sport again. My mum come through the curtains and she said to me, the doctors told me everything will be okay. In 2009, I had bacterial meningitis, as you know, fluid on the brain. I had to learn to walk again and talk again. My mum was still there. She said to me, everything will be okay. In 2016, unfortunately, I was diagnosed with four more tumours in my throat. They told me that my tomorrows weren't guaranteed. And my mum called me and she said, what did the doctors say? And for the first time in my life, I was in a position to be able to give back and return the favour and I told her that everything will be okay. And then in 2017 when our little boy arrived and the doctors told us that or told me that he had a horrible illness called sepsis, my wife said to me, what did the doctors say? And I lied to her 
and I told her that everything will be okay. But that lie turned into a truth, which was amazing. And then in 2020, back in March of this year, when 68 events got cancelled, my roadshow with Tony Robbins got cancelled. We signed a contract to build our dream home and paid the deposit, which has been cancelled. My wife lost her job. My mum lost her job. We were sitting in the office and my wife just held my hand and she looked at me a little lost and she said, what are we going to do? And I said to her with great confidence, everything will be okay. And that's when I put pen to paper and I wrote my second book uh, called Everything Will Be Okay. We are just so grateful that it's out now. Uh, it's, it's The official launch is Father's Day in September, but uh, we've already got copies here in the garage, uh, so we're happy to promote it and push it. So if anybody would like a copy, uh, obviously we'd love for you to grab a copy. All the profits go to charity, and um, it's the old story. It's the previous book that I wrote back in 2015-16. It's that plus an additional 50,000 words. It brings everybody up to speed with even talking about the intimate details of my surgery in 2016 and and my wife and I escaped the world for five days and and, uh, escaped reality and were truly present and began to appreciate our, our lives together because when we get given an end date, all of a sudden we start to look at each second and each problem a little differently. And I've put every tool, every principle, every philosophy that I could ever have thought of, dreamt of and read about into this book to, uh, to really not only uh, leave a legacy but also live into that legacy as well. So um, obviously if anybody wants one, we'd love, love, love for you to grab one. It's on my website. Uh, that's where all the profits go to charity. Or you can buy it through Amazon, Booktopia, Gimmicks, wherever you go, they'll they'll have them. But, um, yeah, grab it through my website and then we can donate more to uh, to charity. Perfect, Michael. And absolutely we'll share details of your website and how to get access to both of your books. The first book, Kids Don't Get Cancer, and the second book, and what a wonderful title and connection that joins the dots in what's been just an amazing story of um, challenge adversity but just to see the impact that you're having on people that you speak to on leaders around the world across all disciplines um, and those less privileged than us in beautiful communities like Haiti um, I just can't commend you enough it just sincere congratulations you had an amazing impact on our farming community and I know that our listeners equally will be really touched by the message that you share and your story and, um, yeah, the um, coaching um, messages that come through everything we've touched on today. So thank you, Michael, for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for your time, mate, and uh, take care, everybody, and uh, please please connect with me on social media. I'd love to be able to help out. Take care.